Welcome to Coffee and Change, a podcast where we talk about change in our lives, our work, and our world, and how we're managing it. On episode 10, we talk with Charlie Burdesco, the interim CEO at the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, NERC for short. NERC is a not-for-profit international regulatory authority whose mission is to assure the reliability and security of the bulk power system in North America. NERC develops and enforces reliability standards, annually assesses seasonal and long-term reliability, monitors the bulk power system through system awareness, and educates, trains, and certifies industry personnel. On this episode, I talk with Charlie about his organization, his role, and some of the changes that he's seeing in the energy and utility industry. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us about your role and your organization? Sure. Well, I'm Charlie Baradesco. Uh, I currently serve as uh, interim president and chief executive officer of the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, uh, which is the longest and most boring name in America. So we call it NERC, and everyone refers to it as NERC. Okay. Um, and I'll get back to what NERC does in a minute. But prior to being the interim CEO, I was until up until about a month ago, I was uh, the uh, senior vice president and general counsel and corporate secretary uh, for NERC. Uh, and uh, I came to NERC uh, in uh, July of 2012 after having been at Constellation Energy, which was a Fortune 200 energy company, uh, primarily in the power and natural gas businesses, uh, uh, major generator and major uh, uh, marketer of electricity. Um, I was general counsel there uh, until the merger with uh, Exelon Corporation, and then I retired and, and came here. Um, into what NERC, uh, NERC is a, uh, uh, an interesting organization. We're an international nonprofit. Mm -hmm. We are sponsored by the power industry. So our members uh, basically are anyone who has an interest in the bulk power system, and I'll talk about that uh, at one point, what that is. Um, but we are uh, recognized by the federal government, specifically the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission certifies us mm -hmm. as something called the Electric Reliability Organization, or the ERO, under Section 215 of the Federal Power Act. And what that means is, is that we are required uh, under that act and pursuant to that designation to develop the, the standards, which are basically regulations, mm -hmm. Uh, for ensuring the reliability of the bulk power system. We also enforce those regulations, uh, and we, do, we are uh, statutorily required to do assessments of the reliability of the bulk power system. Um, and the bulk power system, uh, in essence, is the interconnected electric grid for North America. So the Canadian provinces that are connected to the United States and then the portion of the United States that's connected to Mexico and the Baja Peninsula all make up the current bulk power system. And it's the movement of power uh, across larger distances, not the delivery of power to your home. That's considered what's called transmission. So your local utility is responsible for that, and your local utility commission is responsible for ensuring that that uh, electricity is delivered in a reliable manner. We're responsible for ensuring that the larger system that's the backbone behind it 
is in fact operated in a reliable manner. Okay. So that's uh, to, to, to an everyday citizen, they wouldn't necessarily, as you were saying, they're thinking about power getting to their home. So they wouldn't necessarily interact with your organization or know much about your organization, but utilities themselves would uh, know about yeah. your organization and, and interact. They would be a stakeholder of yours, essentially. Right. So we have about 1,500 entities that are subject to our standards, uh, and they range from uh, what you might expect, large utilities uh, that you know serve customers that also operate um, transmission lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a typical thing for a, a larger utility to do. We also have jurisdiction over uh, generators that are plugged into that bulk power system above a certain level, so large enough to make an impact on the system. Okay. Uh, so there's a number of different kinds of entities that are subject to our standards, um, but they all have the key characteristic that they have they are users, owners, or operators of the bulk power system. I think of it simplistically as if you're driving up 95 mm-hmm. and you see those big higher tension wires, big high tension wires going over 95, that's the bulk power system. That is the movement of power over larger spans. We're designed to avoid large-scale blackouts okay. over a large uh, expanse so that so that blackouts that the, they don't what the the term that's used in the industry is cascade. Mm-hmm. So if you remember, you might remember in 2003 there was a huge blackout in the Northeast. It started in Ohio. Yes. It was a tree contact that tripped uh, off the entire uh, event. It spread up into Canada and then down through New York into Manhattan. We're designed to make sure that doesn't happen again. Okay. And I do remember. I think there was one on the in California, if I recall as well. It would have been the summer of '96. Um, uh, that I believe. I don't know if it was a, 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 a what they call brownouts or blackouts, but I believe there was something that happened from Arizona all the way to California. Um, it was around the time of the Olympics, if I recall. But that was a long time. Ago. Right. Yeah, well, there was one also one in 2011. I was actually speaking at, at uh, a Lambda legal conference in uh, San Diego, and there was a uh, – San Diego or Los Angeles. Maybe it was Los Angeles, and there was a, a big blackout in the southwest. We call it the southwest outage, okay. and it was probably the largest blackout we've had since the 2003 blackout. Okay. So you had mentioned that you're both obviously you've got a legal background and then you're you've got the energy and utilities um, exposure and capabilities and background. Those are two uh, industries that I, I would probably say it's an, maybe an understatement to say they're going through a tremendous amount of change right now. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about the types of change that you're seeing uh, in in your in your role, um, as well as you know thinking about your organization, but also your stakeholders, and then maybe even take it wider in terms of the the legal and the energy and utilities, um, and maybe even some of the cl- compliance space. Well, so let me start back maybe uh, thinking about the the uh, power industry from a large-scale perspective. Okay. You know, the, the power industry traditionally, and, I, and I've been in the power industry, you know, full-time for about 15 years. And before I, that, I was a service provider to the power industry as a lawyer from in various law firm and other kinds of positions I had. So I've had a perspective on the industry for a bit. But 
prior, uh, you know, you know, go back not that long ago, the industry thought in terms of planning in decades. They, they, yeah. they, everything was in long cycles. You would talk about the investment. We were in an investment cycle, and it would be everyone understood that meant, okay, the utility is in a, in a cycle where it's investing in its transmission and its distribution and in its generation, and it's going to be spending a lot of money, and um, um, it's going to be uh, – uh, getting a rate of return on that as part of rate cases in front of commissions. And that was, you know, it, it was just a very elongated period. And people would look at, uh, you know, these long-term planning approaches to electricity demand and, you know, map out what kind of resources would you need, what kind of transmission would you need, uh, where did you need to put in more distribution based on load growth in the, in the service territory. Mm-hmm. That, that model started to break apart, uh, really sort of around the time of the late, mid-late 90s, uh, where um, jurisdictions started to see that there was an opportunity to disaggregate that model, so the traditional vertical integrated utility monopoly, disaggregate that and actually have competition at various levels within that model. And so what you have now is in parts of the country, you have this disaggregated model. So in the Northeast, in the Mid-Atlantic, in some of the Midwest, uh, you have disaggregated utilities. Uh, You have the utility that provides you with the power itself is often just a wires company. All Mm -hmm. it does is operate wires. It doesn't own any generation. uh, So it doesn't source any of its own uh, electricity uh, directly in terms of producing it itself. It, it sources it through purchases. Um, and then you have generators who are providing power. You have marketers, people who are supplying power to p- customers who can buy it. And then you have uh, uh, trading operations and, and people who are providing liquidity in these markets. Um, and so that whole disaggregation happened, which upset the traditional planning model of how utilities thought about how they do that work. But by the way, that was only a part of the country. Other parts of the country, the southeast, still you have a lot of traditional of vertically integrated utilities, so utilities that own generation and use that generation to supply their load. So that's one change that's occurred that's upset the the traditional model. But the other one is is the uh, this intermix of several different things that have occurred in the power industry. First of all, is the whole insertion of renewables, or what I I call for this purpose intermittent intermittent generation. So generation that doesn't run all of the time. Mm -hmm. Often, again, it is a renewable source. So it's solar, it's wind, uh, it's something that is uh, dependent uh, on circumstances to run, uh, but it has a much lower environmental impact. It doesn't ha- typically has zero carbon footprint attached to it, uh, or or or, uh, or very minimal carbon footprint. And so policymakers, of course, uh, uh, are are enamored of the of of these types of resources. As you bring these resources into the mix, it starts to create. Um, a real question about how you operate the system, because the system, remember, was built based on the vertically integrated utility model. So what did utilities 
You're right. They built big steel on the ground. So they built nuclear plants, coal plants, gas plants that were often peakers or supplemental. And they ran those plants. Uh, they ran them all the time. And they knew when they would go out. And, you know, they had outage cycles. And it was very reliable. And the power went out. Now you have the insertion of these other types of resources that don't have that schedule, that don't right. run all of the time. And so how do you – how do you – uh, take those into account in your system. What's also happened at the same time is that you had this really historic shift in the price of commodity, fuel commodity. Mm-hmm. So natural gas, which you know, uh, in the in the two thousand five six time frame was thirteen fourteen dollars. Today is two dollars and change. So. It's become unbelievably cheap, and so now natural gas plants uh, are supplanting coal plants and nuclear plants in terms of their cost structure. That was never the case. Gas plants were not as efficient, and at higher prices, they couldn't compete against um, coal and, and nuclear. So coal and nuclear would always run in an economic environment, and then gas would often be what was called the clearing price. So, you know, once you got to the gas, gas plants, that's where you met the demand, and so the price would get set there. Okay. That's shifting. So where you had you know, a, a, a model of you know, when I was starting in the industry, it was you know, 40%, you know, rough numbers, 40% coal, 20% nuclear, 20% gas. Those numbers have totally shifted. Now you've got a much higher penetration of gas, a highly declining rate of coal, mm-hmm. not only due to environmental regulations, but due to the age of the plants, due to the price of coal not coming, not, not, not it, coal is no longer tied to natural gas as a price point, mm-hmm. so it's changed. And then you have nuclear plants, many of which were built as single-generation units that um, are very expensive to run. Uh, they're expensive all the time, so there's a very little marginal cost in a nuclear plant. And so if you're running an older single-source, single-unit nuclear plant um, in an environment where the price, power prices are coming down dramatically because gas is so cheap, eventually those plants start to go out of business. Right. And so now what you're seeing is the departure from the system of the traditional, what was known as baseload generation of coal and nuclear, the plants that were designed to run all the time. Mm-hmm. And those plants provided, and this is the last piece, and, and I'll stop lecturing, uh, those plants were provided what we call essential reliability services. They were the plants that uh, provided what were called frequency response. So when there was a change in frequency on the grid, they could basically be be operated in a way to maintain the frequency. Uh, Same thing with voltage, same thing with rampings. Right. So all those services that a, a nuclear plant and a coal plant a lot of renewable resources or intermittent resources were not designed with those services in mind. And so how do you replace those services to maintain the stability of the grid? Because at the end of the day, you, you as the consumer who wants to get your power, you know, so say you're, you're a, someone who wants to have power that is uh, environmentally, you know, progressive, so you want, you know, quote, unquote, green power, you want uh, renewable power. 
But if your solar panels aren't working that day or the wind farm near your house isn't working, you still expect to get your power. Right. Well, who's going to provide it? Right. So you have to have you have to have a system that incents some incents somebody to be there to provide that power when those resources aren't operating. But also that provides the services that maintain the stability, the inherent stability of the grid from a physics perspective mm -hmm. that those older resources, the longer term resources provided. Yeah, I mean, I think as you describe it, I was I was kind of picturing, you know, you and I fly a lot, and I fly over the I fly over the country, and I always notice the wind farms. Um, and those days when the wind's not blowing, I mean, I, I do ask that question. I'm like, well, well, now what? I mean, there's they're all sitting there, and they're they're um, you know they're stationary. Um, yep. I think you know, as consumers, you mentioned, you know, consumers are are, are their their expectations are changing. They're saying, I want renewables, and I want green. Uh, in this way, do you do you see uh, that consumer expectation? I would I, I dare say that comes along with education. But even in that, you know, in, in what you just described, there's a lot of information in there. And I know you kind of jokingly saying, you know, you were lecturing, but this is a complex stuff. I and mean, we're talking about infrastructure. We're talking about transmission. We're talking about throughput. This is not something that an everyday consumer probably um, has a lot of. Uh, fluency in, but they expect it all to work. So I'm curious from the standpoint of like the consumer expectations and the education, uh, is that, is that, is that where it needs to be? Are people playing catch up? Are they outpacing some of the utilities? Um, where do you feel that's so in would, terms of consumers? Yeah, I would say, uh, so I think of the consumer expectations in two buckets. One is what you were talking about. Consumers, uh, and, and I can't tell you how many consumers this is, but there's certainly a subset of consumers that want to buy environmentally progressive products for their generation, for their power needs. Right. Um, but I think of more fundamental that the, the uh, expectation for consumers is they want reliable power. They want power that no matter what, the, the, when they flip the switch, the power goes on. Mm -hmm. And that expectation has increased. Okay. Uh, and, and, that, and, that, um, and that's been going on for a while. That, this, that predates what I'm talking about in terms of the change of the system. But consumers, as we've moved to an economy uh, well, and, and, a, and, a, and a lifestyle that is more and more dependent on power, right? right. Which of us does not have the you know, LCD television or whatever fancy-dancy television you have yeah. and your internet speakers and your three iPhones and you know, whatever else, your laptops and all these things that you consider actually critical – to your well-being. They're not nice-to-haves anymore. They are literally part of your everyday existence. Absolutely. So your expectation is no different than, you know, you're expecting to go to the store and find milk, mm -hmm. right, uh, or bread. And so people – and, and people's tolerance for their not – that power not being available is declining rapidly. Rapidly, yeah. Um, and, and yet at the same time, we're building – we are uh, having a system that is decreasing the, uh, the, the, the margin of error mm -hmm. in terms of the st system stability because we are relying more and more on these uh, uh, you know, intermittent generation um, with fallbacks to a declining percentage of 
of resources that have these other characteristics in terms of reliability services, but also that will run no matter whether it's raining or not, uh, or windy or not. And so we're actually uh, looking at, you know, a a bit more risk in the system. Now, we've testified, uh, and part of what NERC does, I mean, we, you know, in addition to enacting standards that we, you know, we enforce against people and penalize people for not doing them, we also do these assessments of the grids. We evaluate the reliability of the integrated grid, you know, three times a year at least, Mm -hmm. uh, two seasonal, winter, summer, and then a long-term look. And so, and then we testify in Congress on uh, and, and at FERC on on what we found, and you know uh, we have testified that we believe in the long run you can operate the system reliably with a high penetration of renewable resources. So we we believe that we believe you could do that, but it requires certain things to happen. It requires that these other services be built into the system, either incented through some type of economic arrangement or simply that everybody who participates has to have these services as part of their uh, contract to provide services. So that that to us is is very important. Um, And so over time, we believe that you can get to that type of uh, you know, as, as a as an engineering matter, you can operate the system in that way, uh, but it's not something that you can do today. And and this is the, the next thing we say is not to insult anyone, but you know what what I, I think there is a you know fundamental misunderstanding of how like electricity works. It's right. not that I flip a switch and it runs, right? You know, it, it, it's not that you flip a switch in your house and suddenly there's a bolt of electricity coming to your house. As you know, probably you know the electrons run all the time, and so maintaining it. I like to call the the, the bulk power system the world's greatest physics experiment. It, it is truly a remarkable thing uh, to maintain this system that literally runs twenty four seven. But that means that if you don't run it in that way, it can in fact collapse on itself, right. and that's what you know leads to a blackout. Um, yeah, and I think it's um, as you mentioned, you know, the the expectations of the consumers, the consistency. I mean, consistency is a word I'm hearing a lot, um, and I've had the opportunity recently to work with some utilities, and the consistency piece is so key. Um, and the other part of that is communication, which I was a little bit, um, you know, I feel a little bit surprised about that it's shifting a little bit. Whereas before, um, it was okay if your your power's on, you're good. Um, I don't know if I, as a consumer, expected my my utility to text me or send me an email or give me an alert uh, five to ten years ago. But I am starting to see that that's a I might see that as a nice to have. There are other people that I that I know that uh, see that as a must have. Um, if I you know if, if I know my my grid's going to be out or there's going to be something. I'd like to know so I don't go home or maybe I stay at the the you know the athletic club longer or whatnot. And, and it's interesting to work and see um, some industries playing catch up with that um, while at the same time struggling with, okay, well, we could communicate to our customers or we could just solve the problem. Is it an and or in, in your opinion? Uh, where, do you, where, do you, where do you see that happening? Well, I, you know, I don't, I don't think this is being any different than any other change in our society. We have become an information society, right? We are driven by information. We are driven by access to information. We want everything at our fingertips. I mean, I have a, 
you know, my mother uh, has an iPhone, and she doesn't have the patience to think about sit around anymore. Uh, it's not an iPhone. I mean, she has a phone, a, a phone, a smartphone, and. She doesn't sit around thinking about this anymore. She just speaks into her phone. She asks her question to whatever version of, of you know, a, a smart person inside her phone, and she gets an answer, and that's what she wants. I don't think of it as any different with respect to the expectation of power customers, right? Mm-hmm. It's just everyone wants their information now. There is, there is just a the cycle of expectation of when you will get an answer on things has changed dramatically. This is whether it's your grades from college, right? You know, right. Where kids now are getting them literally, you know, on, you know, the the next day on, on a website. Yeah. As an uh, adjunct professor, I can, I can, uh, I can empathize with that because you know that your students are jumping down your throat if you don't have your grades in, in three days. Right. Right. Um, I got to read all this stuff first. I can't. Well, I, you know, I remember not getting grades for two months, right? Uh, you know, when I would, but I went, I went to college in the, you know, uh, in the antediluvian age. So, uh, but so it's, it's a, um, I think it's a, a uh, simply a change in our culture. I wouldn't center it on the power industry per se, but the power industry, like any other industry, responds to stimuli and requirements, and, yeah. and some of these. To the credit of you know state public utility commissions, they've pushed some of these envelopes, right? They have said, you the utility have to do a better job because these consumers in our jurisdiction, they're they're our they're our constituents, right? They elect the people who appoint, right? And so we you know what they're telling us is they want better access to better information, and um, and as somebody we had a, we had a power outage at our house. Uh, this past year. And, uh, you know, it was really nice to be able to go online mm-hmm. and to submit the claim, you know, online. It turned out, you know, if we had just sat around and done nothing, uh, it would have, we would have sat there in the dark because mm-hmm. it turned out the problem was, was totally unique to our home. There'd been a collapse of the conduit right in front of our house. Uh, but by being able to, you know, poke the utility and tell them we were an, had an outage and they sent somebody over, they were able, they worked all night long, to tell you the truth, dug up the street, you know, the, the, the sidewalk in front of our house and were able to repair the problem overnight. Um, lots of noise, our neighbors weren't happy, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but we had power. Right. Uh, and so I just think of that as no different than any other industry uh, that sim- we're simply responding to this, you know, uh, is it was it is it Moore's law on on microprocessors or something about you know everything the efficiency or speed doubles every yeah. x number of years? I think of that you know that whatever analogy you would draw to information demand, the, the faster we do things, the faster people want things done, and it's just going to be that way. The business environment is that way. The the you know consumer environment is that way. People sitting at home with their smartphones are that way. It's, it's just Absolutely. that's just the way the world has gone. Yeah, I mean, we we recently had storms in Seattle a couple weeks ago, um, and the winds got up to sixty miles an hour, and so there was obviously some outage. And I just remember a lot of my neighbors in my in my apartment building saying, "Oh, thank God, I had my smartphone charging before, um, because now even mm-hmm. though I'm sitting in the dark, I can." at least be on my smartphone um, or right. go check the, you know, Seattle power and light website um, to see where the outages are and how long it's going to, going to be. And so I do, I do think that is, um, that is kind of fascinating how, as you say, we, we are so used to having all of our devi- devices plugged in 
um, all day. And even when there's an outage, uh, we still want some sort of connectivity for information. It's a desire for information. Um, and then to be able to make decisions as a as a consumer, um, do I, you know, do I stay in my building? Do I leave? Do I go? Do I have to worry about what's in the refrigerator? All that stuff. So um, it is it is interesting to see in terms of that utility of the future and how that includes communicating differently um, and putting the customer at the center is what I'm seeing a lot of. You know, things like customer promise and customer communication centers um, more proactively as opposed to to reactive, um, which you know, is, is interesting to watch that transformation. Absolutely. I, 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 again, and, and from a, uh, particularly in, in uh, restructured markets where you're the, you're the, you know, you, wires only utility. Well, that is your job, right? Your I mean, sort of job one, right. Is, is to take care of your, your customer. Uh, and so I, I think of that as very consistent with that sort of approach um, and I also think, it, you know, uh, and this is a totally, I like to say, unencumbered by facts position on my part, which is I, I think it's probably, it's probably more effective to motivating employees as well. If you, if you make the mission about your customer um, and service to a, a real person, I think it's, easy, it's easier to motivate your employees than to make it about some abstract um, concept. Right. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, from a, again, from a sort of motivating a workforce perspective, I suspect it's a more effective way to, to engage your workforce. Yeah. And I think we're seeing it in banking. We're definitely seeing it in healthcare. Uh, we're certainly seeing it on the technology side where it's that human, you know, yes, there's a lot of technology that is doing things faster and, and, and possibly smarter. I mean, I heard a story this morning on NPR about, um, you know, Google's AI now, so, you know, beating games in record time and, and things like that, that's that's great. But I also think there's a human connection, um, as you were saying, to be able to uh, reach out to someone and uh, and solve a problem for them or help them um, is a distinguishing, um, you know, a, a distinguishing factor for, for consumers and providers of services. Right. So, well, kind of down to our last uh, last few minutes here. Uh, we've covered we've covered a lot. Um, we, we could probably talk for a few more hours. I know, at least on on all of this. Um, bringing it back to a little more personally and professionally for you, uh, I always like to ask people, "What are you most excited about in the year ahead, uh, or years ahead, um, and what are you a little apprehensive about or, or kind of anxious in?" Uh, so on the on the professional side, it's both uh, looking forward and and somewhat anxious. I mean, so I'm I'm an interim CEO. I've chosen not to be a candidate for the position permanently uh, uh, for a number of reasons: some personal, some professional. Um, just not not really at the end of the day consistent with where I want to be at this stage of my life uh, to be the CEO and, the, and CEO of this job is it's a, it's a demanding job. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, so in one sense, however, it is exciting to be an interim CEO. This is a, a, a position I've not held. I've been a general counsel four times. I've been an inter interim general counsel before, but so to, to have the opportunity to be an interim CEO and to be on the board uh, trustees of the organization. Uh, it, it's an honor and it's a privilege, and uh, it, it's uh, something that uh, is sort of a touchstone moment for my career. So I think that I'm very excited about, and to be helping the board uh, as a both a member of the board, but also management in the search for a new CEO is to me, you know, at this stage of my career, is something uh, I wanted to do. I thought I would 
do it a little later than this, uh, but um, it is very exciting. The flip of that is, this, you know, it's, there's a flip to that, which is I've not been a CEO before. Um, it is a time of huge change in the industry. Um, uh, the organization is under, you know, uh, we, we, we've lost two senior executives, so we have some of that kind of stress that's, that's the norm when you have that kind of change at the top. And we're in the, you know, a four to five to six month search process for a new CEO that will mean new leadership. Uh, you know, potentially new approaches, new organizational structures, all that creates tension in an organization. And so helping to manage that tension in the organization uh, so that it's, it's addressed in a healthy way is a challenge uh, for me and, and, and one that I, I think I, I can, can address, uh, but it is certainly going to be, you know, something that I wasn't expecting at this point in my career. Um, so that's sort of the professional challenge. On, on the personal side, I'm, I'm uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to something that uh, has nothing to do with work, and that is uh, uh, my husband and I sing uh, at uh, uh, Church of the Epiphany uh, in downtown D.C., which actually, as I turn my chair in my office, I look into the steeple, mm-hmm. uh, which is a downtown Episcopal congregation, uh, urban, very urban uh, but the uh, congregation uh, with a very diverse uh, uh, attendees uh, and very active social mission. But we also have a very active music program. And so our uh, music director, who is a uh, classically trained uh, uh, musician out of the Anglican tradition, sang at St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle as a lay clerk and uh, is a phenomenal organist and via, uh, pianist and, and conductor. He has arranged for us to spend uh, late July in England uh, this summer uh, singing at Lincoln Cathedral. So we are going to be wow. the choir in residence for a week. Uh, we will do six services, well, six days of services uh, and, and uh, um, uh, so we will do what they call the daily office, and, and uh, which involves basically even song services, and then I think we do a Sunday service, and and then we'll sing at two other cathedrals, do concerts there. So we just did a fundraiser for it, which was very successful, so that we can ensure that all of our members can afford to go. And I was very uh, blessed to be able to be part of that fundraiser, and so we're very much looking forward to it. It's going to be something totally outside my realm of experience uh, to be immersed in the Anglican music tradition in the heart of the Church of England uh, in, in, uh, in the, you know, north, just uh, north of London is, is something that, you know, it'll be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And so, sounds, um, yeah, it sounds rejuvenating and exhausting at the same time. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I, 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 I think of it, uh, we, we uh, laugh, we, for many years we, t- we were able to take trips with my parents. Uh, the, right now they're not able to uh, uh, travel that way. And uh, we always came back and we said, that was a trip, not a vacation. Yeah. Uh, va- vacation is sitting on the beach with your feet up. You know, on, on the sand and and a, and, a, and a trashy novel in your lap, and and you know, uh, 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 and maybe a drink uh, too. Uh, but these, this is a trip. This is this is going to be something that we'll come back tired. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, we will, you know, I think we will we will learn a lot. It, it, uh, I, we've done a couple road trips as a choir, and you. Uh, in the U.S., and you do you 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 bond in a way you just don't imagine, uh, and you become better singers as part of the process. Um, and you know we're a, a you know I call a chamber choir. We're 22, 23 voices, um, and um, so it's it's you know every voice counts. 
Um, and so it's, it's going to be a great opportunity. So that's, that's the high point of the year that we're really looking forward to. That is awesome. I, 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 I could totally picture the, uh, you know, the destinations you're going and I'm getting inspired by it. And, and I probably feel like that's a whole nother podcast interview we could do around the, the choir, the change, the changes uh, of, of what it like, what it's like to be a, uh, in a choir like that. And then, and then travel and go through the, you know, I imagine all of you also hold full-time jobs, uh, and doing this. And so managing that. Yeah. I'm, fascinating. <laughs> I, I'm the luckiest one. Cause literally I, I have about, you know, tw- you know, 20 to 40 steps from my yes, across the street. door to the, to the church, to the church. And, and so I have no excuse to be late for choir rehearsal as, as, uh, my husband reminds me of time to time when I show up late. Uh, but yes, no, it's, uh, though I like to say I've, I've, I've become, uh, I, I've been singing in church choirs consistently, you know, continually for about 35 years. And, um, I have become enamored of classical church choral music. So I've, I've, uh, served on the board of the Baltimore Choral Arts Society. I, I chaired the board of the Gay Men's Chorus of Washington. Uh, and I'm now on the board of Chorus America, which is the service organization for choruses, all through North America, and it's become a bit of a passion of mine is is the choral music tradition and uh, and being able to to support that um, uh, as part of sort of my outside activities is really exciting uh, for me uh, and just and it is literally the most relaxing two hours of the day. I, I when I'm in a choir rehearsal, I lose all sense of anything else in my life other than you know hitting the G sharp. Uh, yeah. It's just just everything else is gone. That is a that is a, a great reminder of the importance of finding your passions, finding the balance um, when you're you know you're holding you're holding up a lot. Um, so I appreciate I appreciate that uh, that perspective. Well, thank you, Charlie Charles, um, and uh, I appreciate the time today. And uh, have a wonderful holiday. And, Thank you. Uh, we hope to talk to you soon again. Maybe we'll be talking about the choir stuff um, after your <laughs> we trip, do a whole, after your trip right, we, uh, next year. <laughs> we could do a whole episode of Anglican church music. It would be fascinating. You know, uh, all five people would call in to listen to it. So well, not, uh, <laughs> not not that you have a minute in that uh, itinerary, but how fascinating it would be to do it from England? Uh, we could oh yeah, maybe swing that. So um, sure. Okay. Sure. Thank, thank you very much, Charlie. All right. Thank you.